Hello, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for Wednesday, January 27th, 2021, National Chocolate Cake Day. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I am a connoisseur of all cakes that are chocolate. Joining me is my co-host and cake lover as well, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. And I have to give a shout out um, on National Chocolate Cake Day to um, Alton Brown's chocolate cake recipe. It is mm, chef kiss, chef kiss. Yes, Alton Brown, everyone's new favorite Betty Crocker. All right, well, now that we've uh, made ourselves completely hungry, let's uh, jump right into some things that are gonna satisfy us, which is the usual tech news that we do here on The Rundown. Uh, it's been a busy week, there's been a lot of cool stuff going on, and we wanna jump right in with uh, a story that kind of shocked me. Uh, Twitter announced on Monday that they are purchasing composable infrastructure company and tech field day presenter, DriveScale. Uh, the terms of acquisition were not disclosed by uh, Nick, Torno of Twitter, he said that the talent from DriveScale would provide deep knowledge of storage protocols and technologies. That makes sense because DriveScale was a really big storage player. Now, they were founded in 2013. They've been seen as a leader in the composable infrastructure market, but the insider info says that the announcement of this sale and kind of the details that we aren't seeing around it maybe thinks that it was kind of a rush to get something done. Um, Steven, you have a lot of knowledge about DriveScale and composable infrastructure in general. What's your take on this pickup by Twitter? Well, I think this was a pretty straight talent acquisition, and there was some serious talent at DriveScale. Um, special shout out to my pal, Tom Lyon, who uh, is a founder and uh, all-around fantastic nerd. Um, essentially, DriveScale was building a you know composable storage system that Honestly, I think they just had trouble finding an enterprise or, you know, commercial market for. And, um, you know, I think that what they built is definitely appropriate for hyperscalers. And so, sure, I think that Twitter might actually be using this architecture. But I think that, frankly, um, they saw a great pool of engineering talent and, and took it. Um, we did hear some rumors that some people were leaving DriveScale uh, at the end of last year. So it seemed like kind of like the writing was on the wall that this was going to happen. Um, I, I'm really not surprised um, that this happened overall. I was surprised when it happened, specifically this, but I, but you know, kind of looking back, I'm like, yeah, you know, I figured that. I think the problem here is, you know, you get a lot of these companies that are basically building um, really advanced products that don't yet have a commercial market, and and that's a big issue because, you know, I mean, companies need customers, and if you don't have those customers, um, you know except for the hyperscalers, uh, then what? And I think that this is actually gonna go into a story a little later on the rundown here as well, in terms of building a product that is super useful to hyperscalers, but maybe less useful to regular people. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, normally when we see Twitter make an acquisition, it's, it's some kind of a media company or some kind of a, an asset that allows them to do the Twitters better. So I'm kind of interested to see this whole infrastructure acquisition thing going on. But not only that, but kind of like you said, um, if it's like being a defense contractor. Um, there's only so many places in the world that need more tanks. So if what you make is tanks and nobody needs them anymore, that's going to be a really difficult proposition for you to deal with. Yeah, tanks, but you know, no tanks. Um, so, Tom, in other news, uh, Intel had to rush out their earnings report this uh, report this uh, quarter because they were hacked, or maybe not. 
Um, the chip giant was forced to release their earnings ahead of schedule on Thursday because allegedly a hacker had accessed sensitive data from the company's servers. Um, turns out that's not what happened at all. Instead, what happened was that an infographic was picked up that could have benefited stock traders with insider information, and it was picked out uh, picked up based on a publicly published URL. Um, after the release, the stock price dropped 9%, but of course it had been up on the Gelsinger news that we reported last week. Um, so this was kind of a, well, cluster cuss. So Tom, what do you think? Um, should we just blame hackers for everything now? Well, we blame them anytime we tweet something that nobody likes. I think this is the first time that this has actually happened because of a website hacker, at least that they admitted it. And I love the fact that they rushed the earnings report out the door before the market closed on Thursday because um, they were supposed to have it out after the market closed on Thursday because nobody ever releases earnings report when the market is open. And then Friday morning when the market reopened, they're like, oh, hey, by the way, we really weren't hacked. We, we have good security. It's just that we have people who are really predictable at naming things. So if you're a company that is publicly traded on the stock market, rule number one, assume that people have crawlers that are on your website constantly looking for new information to be updated because anything that they can get their hands on even an hour early is insider information that they can use to, I don't know, be the next GameStop or whoever the Wall Street bets du jour today is. But don't blame hackers. Um, I get it. It's it. You know, we're big, scary, hoodie-wearing, dark-faced—not um, dark-faced, but like shadowy-faced people. Um, but we're not evil, and we're not like the boogeyman. Please don't do that. Please just admit you screwed up. Um, honestly, take your lumps. How many times over the years have we seen that we admitted a mistake? We were forgiven and all was well. But if you keep blaming hackers over and over and over again, pretty soon you are the security team that cried hacker, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that it just kind of goes with our whole culture um, where, as you mentioned, where people are constantly saying everything was a hack. Like, mm -hmm. oh, you know, my, my account was hacked. My email was hacked. My whatever, my Facebook was hacked. Um, but there's another... Um, absolutely insane news story about Kellyanne Conway and her daughter, um, Google that one, um, which they're blaming, um, you know, anonymous, you know, alleged hackers did something. And it's just like, what? No, it's not always the hackers. Sometimes it's just stupidity. Hanlon's razor, never attribute to malice that which can be explained by stupidity. All right, um, Stephen, we reported on the rundown a couple of weeks ago that uh, CentOS has been changed into something that is effectively Debian SID, the unstable version of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Now, as you can imagine, the community was a little bit upset by this. So they decided that they wanted to get in front of the news story. So Red Hat announced this week that as of February 1st, their flagship distribution of Enterprise Linux will be free and I use the quotey fingers here on purpose because it's only up to 16 production servers. Now you're probably sitting there thinking to yourself, great, this is a trick, isn't it? I'm gonna get a phone call. According to Red Hat, this is part of their developer subscription program. It is not designed to increase sales. You're not gonna get a phone call, we think. Now, Steven, we've talked about this and, and we've been users of CentOS in the past. Is this free Red Hat Enterprise Linux bone kind of a sop to the community to get them to stop trashing the Red Hat name? Or is this really a super clever way to get people to use Enterprise Linux more and create some uh, analytics and, and maybe eventually reach out to them from a sales perspective? 
I'm going to give Red Hat the benefit of the doubt here and say that they're not being cynical. Um, and in fact, I'm going to give them a little bit even more benefit of the doubt and say that this is actually a pretty good move. Um, basically, most enterprise products have a free to developers or free non-commercial version of their product that you can get um, if you register for it. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, a lot of enterprise, you know, technology has that. Um, you know, I'm remembering uh, all the software, you know, storage software that you could download and use for non-commercial purposes and all that kind of stuff. That's what this is. This program already existed and it existed for a long time. It was basically a developer account. Um, and, and now what they've done is they basically said, okay, developers can get, you know, 16 licenses of RHEL um, for free as in beer. Um, and, and that's fine. Um, so again, I, I'm not going to give Red Hat any trouble here. I'm going to say, cool, okay, thanks. Um, but on the other hand, I'm also not going to give them a huge ton of credit here because frankly, this is not a replacement for CentOS. This is, this is hey, like, like the Microsoft MVPs get free copies of Windows Server. Like that's kind of what this is. I mean, except you don't have to be an MVP. Uh, but but if you let, register as a Microsoft developer, you can get free copies of Windows as well. It's kind of the same thing, and that's great, and that's useful. And if you're developing RHEL, you know, you probably need some of these things. But frankly, it's a hoop. It's a hurdle that people have to jump through in order to do stuff. And people have a tendency not to want to jump through hoops and hurdles in order to do stuff. And it's not a replacement for CentOS. So again, I'm just going to say, uh, go Ubuntu. As a parent, I, I think the most apt analogy here is I give you credit for cleaning up your mess. I do not give you credit for creating the mess in the first place. Yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how I see it. Um, all right. Um, uh, your, your friend and mine, Ajit Pai, is out. Um, he is leaving the FCC because his administration has been replaced with a different administration. And that's kind of what happens. Uh, we learned today that Jessica Rosenworcel, I think, Think is how you say her name, is the new acting FCC chairman, um, uh, chairwoman. She has been on the FCC since 2012. She was an Obama nominee. Um, and she is utterly cool. She's an out advocate for net neutrality, uh, for internet access for students. Um, she's spoken out against the merger of T-Mobile and Sprint, all sorts of stuff. Um, what do you think, Tom? Uh, the US Senate has to confirm a replacement for, uh, for it to be permanent. And I don't know that she's actually been uh, nominated as the permanent replacement, but uh, what do you think of this appointment, Tom? I love this. Um, I've been a fan of uh, Chairwoman Rosen Worsell for a very long time, and I'm very happy that I can call her that. I know that a lot of people in the community are positive on Ajit Pai's chairmanship of the FCC because of a lot of things that it's done. Friend of the show, Keith Parsons, has talked a lot about some of the things that he's done to open up Spectrum and things like that. Keith, I love you to death, but we're going to have to agree to disagree here because opening spectrum is a good mark. And then I look at the other side, you know, we're going to kill net neutrality. We're going to let, you know, massive mergers happen to completely reduce um, competition in the market. Um, we're going to do a lot of other things that kind of feel weird. I'm going to own a coffee mug that holds 55 gallons of coffee and requires a forklift to raise to my mouth. There's a list of things that we could, we could bag on. But the point is that I feel like a lot of the agenda was set by business. When you look at the things that Jessica has listed just in the article that we're going to link in the, the show notes, it's pretty cut and dried that these are the kinds of things that advocates of an open internet and open competition across the entire market should really welcome. Like you mentioned, she wants net neutrality. She wants the, every student to have broadband access. And she narrowly defines what broadband is. 
Um, she's anti-merger of large Death Star-style corporations. Um, those are the kinds of things, even if you can't get anything done for the moment, because one of the problems we're running into is with the departure of the, of the commissioners, we're deadlocked two to two, uh, because if, uh, for those of you outside of the U.S., um, the incoming party has the three to two majority. So in that case, for the current administration, it's the Democrats. They still have to nominate another commissioner. And until that point, it's going to be two, two deadlocks everywhere. But we're hoping that that can happen fairly soon because there's a lot of things that need to be discussed through the FCC and a lot of um, policy that needs to be enacted. That being said, I think that we're on the right track and they put the best woman for the job in the chair. So congrats to you, uh, Jessica, and make some good things happen. Yeah, I'll also call out another one of her um, positions that I'm particularly fond of, and that is that she is vehemently opposed to robocalls and wants the FCC to do something about it instead of just pretending to do something about it. Bravo. Exactly. Well, rather than talk about your car's extended warranty, let's get into some extended discussions about some stories that we've got coming up. Now, if you were watching the rundown live last week, you probably got to see the most amazing shocked face on Steven's face ever because we announced that Intel is getting a new CEO, our friend, Mr. Pat Gelsinger. But they decided that they're not quite done yet because they have announced that they are going to be bringing back some of their retired CPU architects to keep the company moving in the right direction. Uh, we got a report from a non-tech that says that Intel is unretiring senior fellow Glenn Hinton, who was the lead architect for a little project they called Nehalem. Um, Hinton says that he had been considering coming back to Intel ever since November, but when the news broke that Gelsinger was going to be coming back to take the reins, that was the push that he needed to come out of retirement. Now, his social media feed has hinted that he's working on some exciting new CPU project, and that does bode well for the company because, as we referenced earlier, after the whole kerfuffle with the earnings report, their stock price did slide a little bit, and part of that is being attributed to the fact that Gelsinger said that he's going to keep the ship sailing in the same direction for the time being, which honestly is the smart move for an incoming CEO. Stephen, is the return of some of their old hats a good sign for Intel that they're going to kind of crawl back into market dominance? I don't know about some of their old hats, but the return of Glenn Hinton is a good sign. Um, <laughs> those of you that don't uh, know the history of Intel, let me just kind of uh, take our, a little trip in the Wayback Machine. So uh, way back when, uh, there was this, um, this thing called NetBurst. Essentially, um, Intel came up with a totally new x86 architecture for the Pentium Pro um, and the, uh, or the Pentium 4. And, and, and that uh, was essentially Intel's big bet for the future. And I mean, to simplify things or excessively simplify things, essentially they were betting on gigahertz, not on parallelism. And it didn't work out too well. And so Intel eventually said, you know, <laughs> forget this, and instead uh, hopped over to the uh, mobile um, designs from Israel and, um, and, 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 you know, released the core um, microarchitecture, which was, um, you know, the first, uh, you know, the Helen chip and was essentially the basis of every CPU, um, every one of their CPUs since then. So essentially today's, um, you know, we talked about Ice Lake and Tiger Lake and stuff like that. All that is a descendant of Nehalem. And Glenn Hinton was the person that basically shepherded that project. Now he didn't do it single-handedly. This is a big company with a lot of great engineers that did a lot of work, but 
Um, the point is, uh, last time Intel found themselves facing um, a cataclysm from a poor architecture choice, Glenn Hinton was one of the people, one of the key people that helped pull the company out of it. He's back, and that's good. Um, I have a feeling that that uh, this was kind of a twofold thing for him. So he did say that it was an exciting new CPU project that he was going to get to work on. I also have a feeling that he got a friend a call from his old friend Pat, who worked with him at Intel at the time, saying, "Dude, uh, we got problems with our CPUs. We could really use um, you know an experienced hand to help guide this thing out." And I think that's exactly what's happened here. Um, the the challenge though is that these projects take years and years and. Um, you know, Glenn Hinton isn't going to come in and make next this year's or next year's CPU awesome. He's going to make the CPU from 2025 awesome. Um, and that, frankly, is a challenge for Intel because, you know, that could be too little too late for the company. Um, but of course, like I said, it's not like he's the only person that can do anything. He's just a, a, a good manager of engineers and understands a lot about chip design. So I would say this is good news for Intel. Is it great news? Um, ask me in 2025. Um, what, what I'd really like to see is um, what Intel is going to do to turn this boat around a little bit. We already reported last week as well on some of Intel's um, newest uh, CPU designs, which have uh, sort of steal the big little concept. They don't steal it. It's not like they trademarked it, but you know, it, it, they steal that kind of big little uh, concept from uh, the ARM chips, and um, that's exciting. Um, you know, I think Intel's on the right path here. Um, but the question really is, is the horse out of the barn? Um, you know, essentially Apple already left Intel and, and they're taking with them not only um, a number of buyers, a good number of buyers of PCs, but also, and most importantly, sort of the halo of PCs. I mean, the MacBook has always been the, the, the halo device. And when Apple releases the titanium M1 MacBook Pro in a few months. I know I've been reading the rumor sites. Um, we might see that the halo is even stronger on non-Intel CPUs, and that's not good news for Intel. So I feel like um, this is a great news. I feel like this is the kind of thing that Pat is going to do for Intel. I think this is why they hired him. This is why I'm excited and happy that they hired him. But I am cautious about saying that this is uh, going to turn the ship around. One thing I will say is that of the three major architects that were on the Halem, one was retired, one still works at Intel, and one left to go to Apple about five years ago. And that's one of the problems that a lot of folks have cited as one of the reasons why Intel is starting to lose dominance is that their engineers and their architects are getting bored and going to AMD and Apple and other places. So maybe this is kind of a, um, hey, look, the cool kids are back in town. Don't you want to come work for the cool kids again? Uh, which we've seen work out in the past, but you don't want to go to that well too many times. So this will be, you know, the second time that that he's Hinton stepped in to maybe save the day. Um, just be cautious that you set a good precedent, because if you have to go to the SWAT team to come bail you out every time there's a problem, you are really not going to like what happens. So Pat, keep your eye on this one. And I think he will. Um, that's what that's what he does. I mean, he's a good manager too. So we'll see. Um, so Tom, uh, last week uh, the East Coast was a little quieter than it usually is. Uh, Verizon had a big uh, FiOS outage uh, in the morning and the afternoon on the East Coast of the U.S. It affected uh, customers up and down the Eastern Seaboard, um, cutting off access to email, virtual classrooms, uh, Zoom calls everywhere. 
Um, the epicenter was a fiber cut in Brooklyn, apparently. Um, Verizon has not released a po updated postmortem yet um, or an explanation of why their systems weren't able to pick up the traffic. But um, Tom, uh, this doesn't bode well. A single fiber cut taking down a lot of the East Coast. What's up? Yeah, Verizon's Fios system evidently is not as robust as we might think it should be. Um, you know, obviously, any carrier system has problems. You're going to run into issues, and we see this over and over again in the underlay network when you know pathways go down, the, the failover systems send traffic in a multitude of different directions and stress links. That's kind of the point of it. However, once the, the report started rolling in, once we knew it wasn't like some kind of weird attack or some kind of AWS problem, it turns out that a single fiber bundle was cut in Brooklyn, probably during a construction project. Uh, the rare North American fiber-seeking backhoe has once again been spotted. But the fact that a single fiber cut in the world's busiest construction zone was enough to completely knock out your fiber, you really need to have a thorough post-mortem and figure out why this happened. Because I'm just gonna tell you, as an accident, it's forgivable. If it becomes something on purpose, like if three paranormal researchers from Columbia University accidentally knock out something while they're investigating a subway tunnel and cause a giant communications blackout, I don't know how that's going to go down. And you know, hopefully they hire a very good accountant as their attorney. Um, we're still trying to figure out what's going on here. And I expect to see a lovely boilerplate postmortem, not one of the Cloudflare style ones where we actually tell you what went wrong. But um, hopefully they've learned their lesson and they're going to make sure that this can't happen again in the future. Yeah, I, I, I think that this is a, a real risk. I imagine that it's probably was a sort of a cascade failure like we see with the power grid where, you know, one link goes down and then other links are unable to keep up with the demand. And so they go down too. And, and pretty soon, you know, we end up with, a, with an outage that shouldn't really have happened. Um, I will point out too that this is not just an arbitrary um, concept, as Tom mentioned um, with his Ghostbusters analogy. Um, remember that um, a lot of cell phone service um, in the southern U.S. was down after the Nashville bombing as well, which apparently was uh, may have been targeted at AT&T's uh, fiber in downtown Nashville. Um, if that's the case, uh, this does not bode well. Yeah, and, and we've seen this before during Superstorm Sandy when there was a massive amount of outage because a lot of the network hubs that were in Manhattan kind of got underwater. So we thought we'd learned that lesson back in 2008, but evidently we need to be teaching it again. All right, um, Stephen, let's jump into the cloud real quick because it turns out that Amazon and Elastic seem to be at odds over some licensing. Um, now, Elastic announced that on January 19th that they're going to be changing the licensing for Elasticsearch from Apache 2.0 to SSPL 1.0. Now, why would they want to do that? Well, they say that the move is seen as a challenge because Amazon is attempting to take Elasticsearch, which is an open source project, or at least it was until this license change, and they're making it themselves and they're offering it for sale and they're cutting elastic out of the middle. Now, if this sounds somewhat familiar, it's because we just did a search and replace on elastic for MongoDB, which is exactly what Amazon did back in 2019. In fact, the SSPL came out of that. MongoDB said, we're going to do these things that do not allow you to build commercial projects on top of our um, open source project. Now, guess what happened? The WizKids at Amazon said, well, we're going to take Elasticsearch at its last licensable version, the Apache 2.0, and we're going to fork it to keep it open for the community. 
which feels grubby, but is also the exact thing that open source was designed to do. When something happens, it changes the terms of a license on a project, you fork it and you keep moving on. And now nobody can stop them from building their own version. The open source uh, consortium did come out and say, by the way, SSPL is not an open license. So don't, don't try to drag us into this mess. You guys made your bed, now you get to sleep in it. Steven, is this another case of Amazon trying to cut out the little guy so that they can just keep all the money for Jeff Bezos's pet rocket projects? Or is Elastic stretching it a bit too far here? Um, yes and yes. Um, this is another case of Amazon um, being Amazon. And frankly, um, I don't want to like Amazon in this situation because uh, they are sure locking a company, um, you know, absolutely. But that being said, uh, I don't think Elastic has a leg to stand on here or Mongo because frankly, you made your bed on open source and now you got to sleep in it. The problem is that if your product is open source, then your product is open source and no amount of make believe and wishes and VC pressure will make it not be open source and keep a company like Amazon from doing this. Um, that's kind of what open source does. And you can't have it both ways. We did a, a podcast about this a few years ago where we talked about open source business models. And um, frankly, it, it just there's just no two ways about it. Open source is supposed to be able to be co-opted by big companies who build their crap on it and sell services based on it because that's what open source does. I mean, could you imagine if Linus Torvalds decided that the Linux kernel was no longer going to be uh, able to be used by anyone making a profit? I mean, no. And, you know, so like I said, I don't wanna defend Amazon here because Amazon, I mean, they're kind of being crappy. And, and frankly, um, you know, I'm sure that there's some crappiness going on here, but, but at, the, at the end of the day, they're doing, everything they're doing sounds legit to me. I'm not a lawyer, but it sounds legit. 710 and earlier is distributed under the Apache 2.0 license. And the Apache license gives Amazon the ability to fork that product and do whatever they want with it, full stop. Yeah. Just because Elastic is missing out on a ton of revenue, because Amazon refuses to give them cash, it doesn't justify screwing around with the licensing for software. And it doesn't justify taking an open source project and making it closed source. So again, I, I, I hate to do this, but I'm gonna get out my big biggest uh, house paint brush and my big gallon of white house paint and start painting Amazon as the white knight here. Because essentially, you know, turn this story around and what we've got is an open source company that's sore that people are making money off of their product and they've decided to close source the product. And the response is that we have a major developer, parentheses, Amazon, UG, who has decided that they're gonna fork the project and keep it going as an open source project. If I phrase it like that, guess what? This whole story changes its colors and looks a lot better for Amazon and a lot worse for Elastic and Mongo. And, and frankly, that's the problem. The problem is that, you know, these companies decided that they were going to go out there and they said, oh, look, you know, open source, like that's a really good thing. Like, I love that. So let's do that. Well, guess what? It, that, it didn't work the way they expected. And that's the way the cookie crumbles, buddy.
Yeah, I, I as I was looking at the story, it kind of reminded me that Elastic is basically the chaotic good company. They're doing all of the things that they're supposed to do, but they're doing it all in the wrong way. And Amazon is the lawful evil company, which is we're going to follow the letter of the law and do the things that we're supposed to do. And you're going to hate them for it because you technically can't say that they're doing anything bad. And I get that you want to try to monetize this because you put your heart and soul into it. But a lot of people put their heart and soul into it who don't work for your company. And you're basically telling them that you own their intellectual property now and you're going to try to profit off of it. I get that everybody wants to be Red Hat. They want to take a successful open source project. They want to turn it into something commercial and then they want to ride that off into the sunset and they can buy IBM later. That's not going to happen. If you get into open source with dollar signs in your eyes, hoping that one day you can turn your project into something that you can use to buy a boat, you might as well start building your boat in your free time right now because that's the closest you're ever going to get to one. Yep. And absolutely. And and frankly, if I was an open source developer thinking about contributing to the Elasticsearch or the Kibana project with these kind of licenses or the Mongo project, I would probably be like, yeah, you know what? I don't want to contribute my heart and soul and hard work into a product, a project that's not truly open source. And um, and, and I think that maybe the Elastic folks need to, or maybe their lawyers and investors need to think about that too. Because frankly, um, as soon as you spike the punch bowl, uh, some people are going to leave the party. So Tom, remember back on January 4th, way back when, when Slack went down and nobody could work? Um, I know that was a long time ago, especially by 2020, 2021 standards, um, but it did happen. Well, it turns out part of the reason was the cloud. Slack was uh, is reporting that the initial cause of the outage was an AWS transit gateway that failed to scale properly when a massive influx of new users hit the service. Um, the gateway did eventually expand to carry the load, but by that point, the damage was done uh, and Slack was uh, querying their servers to create a self-inflicted DDoS attack. This isn't the first time that Slack has DDoSed themselves. Uh, back on Halloween in 2017, uh, something similar happened when a number of users were kicked off simultaneously uh, before trying and failing to log back onto the service. Um, is the cloud really to blame here or is this bad coding on Slack's behalf? To, uh, to borrow your previous turn of phrase, yes and yes. So here's my my read on it, because I actually wrote a blog post about this last week where I broke down some of, some of the, how do you plan for a worst case scenario you can't even imagine? Yes, I get it. January 4th, a lot of people took the last week of the year off. We did here. I mean, there was no rundown. Um, and, and we all logged back in on January 4th, ready to get some work done because it's a new year. And, and why is Slack not working? Oh, crap. And it's not just that it was out for a few minutes, it was down for hours. And I get that, you know, transit gateways, no matter how elastic things are, they still need time to stretch. You can provision infinite resources, but you can't provision them instantly. Look at the number of applications now that want us to schedule recordings or to put things on the calendar for a specific date so that they have a demand calendar, basically. I know I'm gonna need more of these at 1 p.m. on this day. Well, that didn't happen. And of course, it, it caught up eventually because infinite resources. But by that point, the problem number two comes in. How did you have a DDoS two and a half years ago because your client is constantly querying against the servers to get reconnected and somebody inside your organization didn't look up and go, wait a minute, maybe we need to have a back off timer. Maybe if like we hammer it three times and it doesn't answer, we wait five minutes and we try again. That even that with it with a randomized backoff timer like we programmed into transmission control protocol, for example, that would have been enough for the servers to be able to keep up. Because if you think that it's hard to scale a transit gateway that Amazon builds to handle heavy loads, 
you're just as guilty of not being able to scale your back end to handle that much communication failure. So there's a lot of egg on a lot of faces around here. I don't want it to sound like I'm hammering on one person or the other. Um, I think Amazon's less at fault here because their system did exactly what it was supposed to do in the way that it was supposed to do it. I'd say that Slack needs to hire some of those Salesforce coders to come over across the wall. I mean, they don't really have to hire them because they already work there to help them implement a back off timer because this is a problem that will continue to happen as Salesforce tries to grow the Slack user base or tries to integrate it into all the other things like they're going to do. If you think it's bad now, it's going to get way worse later. And as soon as there's the least little bit of hiccup somewhere in the world, you're just gonna get this, well, it's like a VDI boot storm. It's like, as soon as something happens, everything's just gonna go like, it's gonna be like an earthquake. I got nothing. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I mean that, that's kind of the thing. I mean, Stephen and I were joking when it happened. It's like, well, um, do some work now that Slack's down and maybe we can get some more work done later when it comes back up. And, and I'm sure that the Slack headquarters, people were running around with their hair on fire. But I mean, ultimately, you're going to blame something and then kind of like push your client's problems under the rug. Don't, don't do that. Own up to your mistakes. Uh, honestly, guys, I tell you what, if you're listening to the show, because I know you are, because we, we have a lot of fans all over the place, go look at one of Cloudflare's postmortems and just mea culpa, our client has problems. We're going to fix them. Don't don't try to get cutesy and go, Amazon's broken. Mm -mm, maybe they are, but you fix your house before you start throwing stones. All right. Well, Stephen, thanks for joining us for the rundown today. We had a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to all of the people that we have who are following along on all of our other social media platforms. We really appreciate your opportunity to engage and interact with us. Remember that uh, we are on Twitter at Gestalt IT. Um, we sometimes use the hashtag rundown. So if you have a news story that you would like to see us cover, um, you can send it over to us. Sometimes people like to point out when Oracle Cloud does something funny because they want to see what Larry Ellison joke I come up with this week. But um, we are also published the show every Wednesday at 1230 Eastern time on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash gestalt IT video. Show notes are usually published on the website shortly thereafter. So you can click on all the links to the stories that we found, um, read some of our funny jokes about them. But if you want to follow along, please follow our YouTube channel because there's a lot of other great content that comes out there. Um, my conversation series where we dive deep into some technology, the uh, gestalt IT checksum series where um, we talk about some of the interesting stuff that maybe we don't have quite enough time to cover here on the rundown the on-premise IT roundtable. We've got a lot of other great content that's going to be coming out very soon. Um, Steven, you're a really busy man. What have you got going on this week that people should definitely be checking out? Well, last week was storage field day. So there's a bunch of uh, videos from that up uh, 15 or 20 hours of uh, great enterprise storage presentations. Just go to YouTube slash tech field day and you can see those. Um, also, uh, as you mentioned, we've got other podcasts. Uh, I do recommend giving uh, utilizing AI a listen. And um, I will just give a little shout out here. We're trying for the first time uh, Clubhouse. So if anyone listening to this is interested in uh, getting an invite to Clubhouse, uh, hit me or Tom and, and we'll try to uh, hook you up with an invite. And uh, hopefully you can try that new audio-based social media service. Yep. And we're, we're always trying new things here, especially if they don't involve us having to learn some new dance craze. So audio only works for me in that case. Well, for uh, Stephen and myself, for the great Gestalt IT team, thanks for tuning in this Wednesday. We'll be back next week with more news of the week and possibly just a little bit of snark. So um, we will see you all then. And for now, everyone have a super sparkly day. Bye-bye. Did you just dab? <laughs> Dance craze. Never do that again. <laughs>